Well, in September of 2009, Clifton Williams was headed to the courthouse. Now, he wasn't the one in trouble. He simply was going to support his friend on that particular day. In fact, it was his cousin, and he was going to be sentenced, and so he was there for support. And at the precise moment, and here's a picture of Clifton. He doesn't look too happy, and you'll find out why in a minute. At the precise moment that Judge Daniel Rozak was reading the sentence, Clifton let out a yawn. Anybody here yawned? You know, yesterday I was looking at pictures of people yawning. Did you know that yawn is contagious? I'm looking, I'm waiting for somebody to yawn. Uh Uh-huh. It was an ill-timed yawn. And the judge cited Clifton for contempt of court and handed down a sentence of six months in jail, which is the maximum sentence for contempt in court, all for yawning. Ironically, his cousin, who was scheduled to be sentenced, only got probation. But Clifton got six months. Now, after it was all said and done... He was able to just only stay in prison for a few days, but even still, all for a yawn. Some said, you can't help yawns. It's something that just happens. And round and round it went. Today, we are going to be continuing our series, Hope in the Last Days. And I'm going to tie that in with this uh, piece that we're going to be talking about today. But we've been looking at the coming crisis, anticipated or dreaded, revival, genuine or counterfeit, shaken or sealed. We've looked at that last week, worship in the National Sunday Law. And this week, close of probation and the seven last plagues. It's in that order, by the way. The close of probation, meaning the door is shut. He that is just, let them be just still. He is holy, let them be holy still, and so on. But then you have the seven last plagues. And then, of course, next week, actually it'll be in two weeks, heaven and eternity. But you might be thinking, was the penalty that the judge handed to Clifton, was it too harsh? Was it fair? Was it just? And you may also think very similar things when you go through and you read about the seven last plagues. What does this say about our God? Why would a loving God pour out seven last plagues? Are the plagues arbitrary scourges on the part of God to simply punish? And why these plagues specifically? Is it true that God is love? And if so, how does this coincide? How does this fit with that? Is it true that all prophecy is Christocentric, meaning centered on Jesus Christ? And if so, how does that come into account when we talk about the plagues? So the questions become, what do the seven plagues do to teach us about Jesus? And we're going to look at that today because I think there's some very important points. We're going to look in our Bibles. We're going to stay in these few chapters in Revelation, starting in Revelation chapter 14, 9 and 10, and then we're going to flip over to 15 and eventually 16. 
And I have a few other texts, and I'll put those on the screen today. But I want you to see this portion in your Bible. Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse 9. This is the third angel that follows, and we've read this before. But as a, a way of reviewing here, we're going to pick it up again today in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. And there I read... Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now we have looked before, what is this wrath of God? Well, for that... You might have to turn your page to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1. And there we read, Then I saw another sign in heavens, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And so we have the wrath of God being connected with these seven last plagues. Okay? And then, going to verse 8, it says, The temple was filled with smoke, and from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So what is the wrath of God? Well, we've seen it's the seven last plagues. And who receives them? We have seen it's those that receive the mark of the beast. And then the question, when Will Jesus come in relationship to the plagues is answered in that last text where it says no man will enter the temple till the seven last plagues are complete. Where is the temple? Well, for that, we're going to look at Revelation 21, verse 1. I have it here on the screen, or you can turn in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And there we, see, we read, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or temple of God is with men. That is his temple. So notice that nobody can enter that temple until the seven plagues are fulfilled. That must mean then that Jesus comes after the seven plagues, not before the seven plagues. In other words, we're not raptured before the plagues. Now, this concept of the rapture is a subtle deception, I believe, of the devil for an easygoing, crossless, health and wealth prosperity form of Christianity. If you follow God, nothing will ever harm you. Nothing will ever be a problem for you. We find this on many popular TV preachers today, this idea. But as Seventh-day Adventists who believe in God, we believe that God is strong enough to hold us in his hand and to keep us secure in the time of trouble. But we live in a society that says, no pain, no suffering. 
Jesus came and died on the cross to give me a life of joy and happiness and prosperity and fulfillment. And if you're sick, it's because you haven't been blessed of God. And if you're facing debt, it's because you haven't been blessed of God. The only thing you need to do is to be faithful to Jesus and it'll be like sitting on a cloud, riding on a cloud, floating to the kingdom with health, wealth, and prosperity. They don't say it quite like that, but if you listen long enough, sounds very similar. But the problem with that is that it's not realistic to life because everybody goes through some sorrow in life some heartache in life, some disappointment in life. But Christ holds us in the disappointment. We serve a Jesus who often does not deliver us from the tribulation, but is with us in the tribulation. We serve a Jesus who at times does not deliver us from sickness, at times he does, but is with us in sickness. We serve a Jesus who was with Noah during the flood, although the ark was being tossed and turned in the waves. We serve a Jesus who was with Joseph when he was betrayed by his brothers, when he was lied about by Potiphar's wife, who was with Joseph in prison. We serve a Jesus who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery flames. We serve a Jesus who with Daniel was with Daniel in the lion's den. We serve a Jesus who was with Job in the midst of his boils and afflictions, financial adversity when his house fell down. We serve a Jesus who was with Peter in his bondage. We serve a Jesus who understands suffering who had nails driven through his hands, a crown of thorns on his head, who was rejected. We serve a Jesus who is fully capable of meeting every one of life's trials and tribulations. That is our Christ. He is powerful enough to keep us through the time of trouble. So Jesus will come after the plagues, but how do we know that, you might be asking? Well, clue number one. No man, as we saw, was able to enter the temple until after the seven last plagues. But we have clue number two as well. For that, let's turn to Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15 This is in the midst of these seven last plagues. But notice in verse 15, before we get to the seventh, it says, Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming, future, as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So wait a minute, this is after the sixth plague. Now what sense would it make for the revelator to say he is coming as a thief after the announcement of the sixth plague if he comes as a thief before the plagues? Do you see the reasoning? It would make no sense to say in verse 15, he's coming like a thief if he had already come like a thief in the past at the beginning of the first plague. 
So to those who believe in the rapture, you can ask them. Tell me, what is it like when he comes as a thief? That's the word that they play on. Oh, well, he, he snatches people away. And you can be on an airplane, and someone's snatched over here, and someone's snatched over there. Maybe the pilot gets snatched away. People are driving down the road, and a person gets snatched, and there's an accident. Two will be in the field, you know, and, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Be two in bed, and, and the husband says, hey, where's my wife? She's gone. Another verse we could look at, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a what? Thief. But that's not all. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So then you can tell your friend. So when he comes as a thief... It's really not secret at all. In fact, the elements are burned up. So this thief imagery is that he comes quickly. Is the fact that when he comes, people are unprepared. And they don't expect him. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus says... Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The coming of Jesus as a thief is always in reference to time, never in reference to the manner of his coming. The second coming is a surprise to those that are unprepared. That's the whole idea of a thief, right? I heard the story of a couple that were new in the neighborhood and they were still getting everything settled and they had their barbecue out back and then one day they noticed their barbecue was gone. And they said, oh no, somebody's stolen our grill. What should we do? Well, there's not much you really can do. You can file a report and they'll take it, but you know how that goes. And then lo and behold, a few days later, their grill showed back up. It was right there on their patio. And when they opened it up, they found a letter inside that said, Thank you so much. We were in a bind. We had invited people over. Our grill had died. We borrowed yours. Forgive us for not asking. Here are two tickets to the game in town. Go enjoy. They were excited about this. This was so nice. Oh, certainly we understand. We have good neighbors. Yay. And they went to enjoy the sporting event. And the thief came back and cleaned out their house. The second coming is a surprise to the unprepared. I don't know of too many thieves that knock on the door and say, here I come. So Jesus will come to get his people after the plagues. First clue, no man was able to enter the temple until after the seven last plagues. The second clue, Christ announces his future coming after six plagues have already been poured out. So we know and we can conclude that Jesus is coming after, not before, the seven last plagues. Now these plagues are called the seven last plagues. Why are they called the seven last plagues? Were there any plagues before? Do you recall? Yes. Back in Egypt with Pharaoh. But how many plagues were there then? Ten. Why 10 in Egypt and 7 at end time? 
Well, the first three, when we go back to Egypt, the first three affected the general land. Go back and check it out. The last seven affected only the Egyptians, and this is good news. The last seven only affected the Egyptians while the Israelites were untouched. I propose to you that in the same way, the seven last plagues do not touch God's people. Just like the seven last plagues of Egypt did not touch God's people then. And you might be saying, this sounds like good news, but how can I know this for sure? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, about the children of Israel. He mentions the pillar of cloud. He mentions the Red Sea, the wilderness experience, the drinking from the rock and the serpents and all of that. And then in verse 11, he says this right here. Now, all these things happened to them as what? Examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul says they are an example, an admonition, which is authoritative counsel. So you have the children of Israel as an example for God's people in the last days. Stop and think. Both groups are persecuted. Both groups are pressured to break God's law. Both groups appear helpless. And I would say both are protected during the plagues. Both are delivered by God after the plagues. So now let's look and dive in a little bit more to this message of these last plagues that we find in Revelation chapter 16. Because we still need to answer, does God punish just for the sake of punishing? Why would a loving God pour out seven last plagues after the close of probation? And why these specific plagues? And what do they teach us about Jesus? So we're still in Revelation. Now we're in chapter 16, verse 1. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 1. Are we froze up there? See if you can go one more, and we're going to read verse 1 of Revelation chapter 16. It says, Then I heard a voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, the first five plagues is all we'll have time to deal with this time. But the first five plagues are literal. They are not symbolic or spiritual plagues. You read Revelation, you read Great Controversy, they're all literal plagues, the first five. But the question is, what is the deeper message of God's end-time church in the plagues? And so we keep reading Revelation chapter 16, verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So right off the bat, who did the sore fall upon? Those that had the mark of the beast. Who then did it not fall upon? God's people. So plague number one, we have foul and evil swords like a boil. Now, when I was a student missionary, I better not tell you and slip and tell you the name, but I had some roommates that had one developed a really big boil right here on his side. And I have my theories about not taking enough showers and what have you. But anyway, it got to be about this big. 
And it just got more and more infected, and it would stand out from the skin about an inch or so, and it was just terrible. It would weep through his clothes. If he'd borrowed mine, it'd weep through mine. We won't get into that. He couldn't sleep well at night because you roll over and this thing hurts and then it itches and then it, you open it up and it just was terrible. So the first plague, why did those that enforced the mark of the beast receive and take this plague? Well, you may recall from other sermons, I believe it will be said, if you receive the mark of the beast... We will give you physical security. You don't want to suffer pain. You don't want to be persecuted. Take the mark of the beast. So the first plague is physical affliction that says those who enforce the mark of the beast could not deliver on what they had promised. That's key. Could not deliver on what they promised. So plague number one. Man's message, if you accept the mark of the beast, you will enjoy physical security. It's an easy way out, they say. But God's message is all physical security is in who? It's in Christ, that's right. All physical security is in Christ. I would rather trust Jesus with my body for physical security than go to some spiritualistic healer now to receive boils later, wouldn't you? All physical security is in Christ. And we're finding that every plague teaches us about Jesus. Psalm 91, you know this very well. We're beginning in verse 5. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Amen? Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Isn't that good news? I believe that's good news. So we're going to continue on. Revelation chapter 16, now verse 3. We're into the second bowl being poured out, and we read there, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. So plague number two, the sea becomes like blood, and everything in the sea dies. What's that going to do to shipping? What's that going to do to the economy? Do you remember the oil leak in the Gulf in 2011? It froze up and stopped everything real quick, didn't it? But those who give the mark of the beast, what do they say? It will enable you to buy and sell. And so plague number two, man's message. If you accept the mark of the beast, you will enjoy economic security. Isn't that the line that they gave? But God's message here, all economic security is in Christ. Again, they cannot deliver on the promise. Isaiah 33, verse 16. We've read this before. Your bread will be given him. His water will be Sure. 
All economic security comes from Christ. In Great Controversy 629, we read this, that God who cared for Elijah will not pass by one of his self-sacrificing children. He who numbers the hairs of their head will care for them. And in time of famine, they shall be satisfied. While the wicked are dying from hunger and pestilence, angels will shield the righteous and supply their wants. Angels. Isn't that amazing? God is the only true source of our economic security. And so we continue on to the third in Revelation chapter 16, beginning verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just do. Now, before the close of probation, there will be some martyrdom. But after the close of probation, there will be no more martyrdom. Why not? Because we're not playthings of the devil. The only reason there will be martyrdom is because the faith of the Christian martyrs will stimulate some whether it be the court judge or somebody on the jury or some onlooker, to accept the gospel. What do they say? The blood of the martyrs is seed. But this is after the close of probation. Everybody has already made their ultimate and final decision. They will not change their mind at this point. And so I believe God will not allow life to be taken once we get to this point. So during the plagues, the devil cannot take our life. Our life is hid in Christ. If we are committed to Christ, our lives will not be a plaything of the evil one. And so plague number three, man's message, if you accept the mark of the beast, we will guard your life. But God's message, your life, all that you are, everything, ultimately can only be hid in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so you have the first plague, all physical security is in Christ. Second plague, all economic security is in Christ. Third plague, my life is in Christ. And then we get to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 16. And there we read, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl, on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Men are scorched with fire. What is the object in this controversy? We've talked about it before. Worship is the object. Rather than creator worship, they have passed what kind of law? A Sunday law. And what they didn't realize is that the object of that law they have passed has been the object of pagan worship down through ages. Egyptians worshiped the sun in Amun-Ra. Babylonians worshiped the sun in Belmarduk. The Persians worshiped the sun in Mithraism. Romans worshiped the invincible sun god. 
It's been the object of worship. Yet now, unknowingly, it scorches men. Plague number four. Man's message. All must worship on the day of the sun. God's message. All true worship is in Christ. And so you have the first plague. All physical security is in Christ. Second plague, all economic security is in Christ. Third plague, my life is in Christ. And fourth plague, the center of my worship is in Christ. Because all true worship is where? It's in Christ. It's faithfulness to Christ. My life, my whole being is in Christ. My finances, my money, my body, all of it is in Christ. And then the last one we're going to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 16, verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. That was verse 10. So plague number five, darkness on the throne of the beast. They looked to the beast for light, but there was only darkness. Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the light. I am the truth. And so they looked to the beast's power on an earthly throne for light. And so the fifth plague, we find here man's message. We are the source of light and of truth. But again, they can't deliver. God's message, all true light and truth, is in Christ. Jesus is the center of every topic of last day events. And we must not focus on the plagues, but on the promises. Beautiful promises, like this one in Isaiah 32, beginning verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest. As rivers of water in a dry place is the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Or this one in Psalm 46, verse 1. You know this one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We could even say in the time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And then another one that we've already looked at. Psalm 91, verse 7, a thousand may fall at your right side or at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. And then this one in Isaiah 33, verse 16, we've already said, bread will be given him, his water will be sure. We need to focus on the promises that will bring us through the plagues.
We'll touch on the last two next week. But I want to share another quote here from Great Controversy 629. It says, That God who cared for Elijah will not pass by one of his self-sacrificing children. We looked at this already, but I want to read it again. He who numbers the hairs of their head will care for them, and in time of famine they shall be satisfied. While the wicked are dying from hunger and pestilence, angels will shield the righteous and supply their wants. Get out your great controversy. Underline that. Star it. Highlight it. Now, I've heard people say, well, there's no intercessor in the time of trouble. Therefore, Christ will leave us, and therefore, we'll be on our own. We'll have to clench our fists and grit our teeth, and we'll just have to bear it. Friends, the truth of the matter is, if you were left on your own in the time of trouble, you're not going to make it. Nobody makes it on their own strength. Nobody makes it on their own power. Whatever living without an intercessor means, it doesn't mean that Jesus will leave us. Where was the Father when Christ was dying on the cross? He was right there. Could Jesus see him? No. Did Jesus know his Father was there? I believe he did. Did the Father love him any less when he was dying on the cross? No. Did the Father care for Jesus any less when he was dying on the cross? No. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he depended on the relationship he had with the Father before the cross. And by faith, he held on in time of trouble for him. Did Jesus go through rejection on the cross? Did Peter deny him? Will some people deny us? Did Judas betray him? Will some people betray us? Did disciples forsake him? Will some people forsake us? Oh, poor me, oh, poor me, somebody betrayed me today. Poor me, poor me, somebody rejected me today. You know what? Jesus, in love, I believe, is giving you and I lessons to teach us to trust him today. So rather than weep in your self-pity because somebody didn't smile at you when you went to church today, oh, that place is so unfriendly. Since they didn't smile at me today, I'm going to leave there today. Oh, look what the elder's doing today. Maybe Jesus is teaching you a lesson of trust. Maybe a loving God allows people to disappoint you at times. He doesn't cause it, but maybe he's working that out for your own good so you can learn to trust him and him alone. See, on the cross, Jesus experienced physical pain. They drove nails through his hands. He experienced psychological pain. They forsook him. He experienced emotional pain. He was hurt and bruised when Judas denied him. So on the cross, Christ went through an experience where he went through a deep period of darkness and a time of trouble, but he trusted the Father. Although he could not see or feel the Father's presence because he learned to trust the Father in every aspect of his life. 
And Jesus knew the Father's heart, and he knew that he had to deny what was going on around him and by faith grasped what was happening above him. And so in that time of trouble, it will feel, it will seem, everything will overwhelm us, and we're going to have to grasp onto that relationship we've had in the past and say, no, I know God, I know he's going to see us through, I know he's fair and he's just. I know I can trust him, and I'm going to keep looking to him, and he alone will be my deliverance. And that's why Jesus said at his last breath, it's not one of doubt. It was not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not his last breath. He did go through a period of, where is the Father when I'm going through this? And we will go through things similar to that at times. We will wonder during those times of trouble, has God forsaken me? That will be a natural thing. It comes to all of us at times. We go through that today. We go through our trials and we say, God, where are you? God, you've forsaken me. But that wasn't Jesus' last words. Jesus' last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. In essence, Jesus' last words were, Father, I trust you. Father, my life is in your hands. So in the time of trouble, when every earthly support is cut off, when all of our emotions tell us one thing, we hang on by faith. Did you know that you have to train captive canaries to sing? Some of you probably already know that, but if you just have a, a canary in a cage, it's not going to sing unless you train it. Not too long ago, we got an opportunity to go down to Brazil, and we got to see 5,000 rare birds, and birds are just beautiful, and their feathers are beautiful, and, and all the variety, and almost like, like fish under the ocean, just the detail is magnificent. But if you want to train a canary to sing... You have to take the canary by itself and cover the cage. And then you whistle to this canary to train it a song, a tune. So when the canary is in darkness, it can only hear the voice of the trainer. And it listens to that voice and it learns the song to sing. And every canary learns a different song. And the song that it learns in the darkness, it will never forget. In Revelation 15, 3, God teaches us a song. Speaks of it there in 15, 3. For those that go through the time of trouble, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. We read there, they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. They sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. What is the song of Moses? Well, it tells us right there. We just read it in verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works. True are your ways, 
So when we go through the time of Jacob's trouble, when every earthly support is cut off, we learn to trust Jesus. We learn that Jesus is our physical security. We learn that Jesus is our economic security. We learn that Jesus is our life. We learn that Jesus is the center of our worship, and we learn that Jesus is the one, the center of all truth. Jesus gives us a song, a song of Moses and of the Lamb. You might recall Moses went through the plagues, and God delivered Israel after the plagues. But through those plagues, they learned to trust God. And they sang the song of Moses as they went through the Red Sea. When the Egyptian armies were drawing near, and they came out the other side untouched. God is teaching us a song. I believe, through the trials of our life. God is teaching us a song to sing in the heartaches of our life. God is teaching us a song to sing in the disappointments of our life. And as we learn that song, it's the song of deliverance. It is the song that great and marvelous are His ways. It's the song of our unique experience. You know, nobody has an experience just like you. But in your tears, in your heartache, in your disappointment, in the brokenness of life, in the dark moments of life, it's then that we often learn to trust. Someone might be saying, I'm not going through that. My life's wonderful now. Do you have any Band-Aids? You may not need those old band-aids today, but you better keep one around because someday you're going to skin your knuckles. Someday you're going to skin your knees because someday you're going to face a trial where you need to trust God. Someday you're going to face a heartache where you need to trust God. And if he gives you a little trial today, thank him for it. And if he gives you a big trial today, thank him for it. Some, somebody here, I imagine, is brokenhearted. Somebody today is facing some real difficult experiences in life. You may be stressed out about how you're going to make the payment for next semester. How are you going to turn in enough money to graduate? Maybe you lost your job. Maybe it's a relationship that has gone sour. Maybe it's a health difficulty that is racking your body. And you may be saying, Pastor, I don't have to wait for a future time of trouble. Now is my time of trouble. My life is falling apart. You don't know what I'm going through at home. You don't know what I'm going through at school. You don't know what I'm going through at work with my parents, my kids, my spouse. Friend, whatever you're experiencing today, Christ will hold you in his arms. He is the only true source of refuge. Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me. 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened today? Are you heavy laden today? If you are going through a time of trouble today, he is there for you now. He wants to teach you in that time of trouble that you're going through today how to trust him. So when every earthly support is cut off, you can trust him tomorrow. Jesus learned to trust him in times of trouble before the cross so he could trust fully at the greatest time of trouble at the cross. Will you trust him today? Will you take his hand today? Will you place your life in him today? Dear Heavenly Father, as we have looked just briefly this morning at what the time of trouble may look like and how it reveals what is in the heart and how it takes total trust and surrender in every area, Lord, I pray that we will practice that same surrender today in the trials that we are facing, in the things that seem overwhelming, all-consuming, Impossible. We don't see any way out, and perhaps we feel very much alone and discouraged. But Lord, we know that you are with us. That every form of security, be it financial or physical or economic, our life, our worship, everything only truly is made known and revealed in Christ. Help us to be in Christ today. May you lift us up. May you carry us on. May you show us the way as we follow today. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.